Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Drop the Mic. I'm your host, Darren Jenkins, and I am joined today by a friend of mine who we've been talking about trying to get him on the show for a while. Finally, he's able to make it. Kevin Christofferson, development executive and educator and uh, co-founder of Film Startup. Uh, which is a, an amazing platform, which we'll probably dive, we'll dive into a little bit today. How's it going, Kevin? Uh, 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 how's things going with you? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks for having me on. I know we've talked about it for a while, so it's good to be here and um, be a part of the whole podcast community and um, and see where the conversation leads. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, it's it's so funny because like sometimes like the I think the last time I talked. <laughs> I said, hey, we should have recorded this. Could have been a podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I think sometimes the most interesting con- um, podcasts are just these conversations, you know? So that's how I kind of roll. So, um, but I, I always try to kick it off um, trying to get a little bit, learning a little bit more about the person who's across from me at the time. And so, um, wh- I don't think I know this about you. Where Where did you grow up? Um, it's a bit of a long story, but it began on Staten Island, of all mm. places, in the Forgotten Borough. And um, <laughs> I lived was far. Yeah, <laughs> I lived in Staten Island until like uh, late teens. Went away to college in upstate New York. Where, um, where did you go to school? Went to two state universities. The first one was uh, SUNY Morrisville, which mm. is like going up towards Syracuse, pretty far up north. Um, studied journalism, got an associate's degree in journalism. And then took all those credits, transferred it over to um, SUNY Oneonta. Oh, I'm familiar with that very well. Yeah. And then I tried to do a film major um, at Oneonta, but they only had a film minor. Mm-hmm. So I had to major in English, do the minor in film, which was great. Introduced me to the film industry and what that whole world was like. So that was sort of the beginning of, you know, shaping a career around film, if there is such a thing to do. So interesting so yeah what was the catalyst what like what what like so you were from journalism to film it's a little different um what what made you decide to make that jump you know ironically enough uh the first day of class in the in the sort of major journalism uh program i was in professor comes in you know the first day of our classes and he says you know that newspapers will be out of business within the next two decades. Huh. Um, yeah. So I thought about that because my father was a journalist. He was uh, a news editor for the Daily News for many years. Oh, wow. Uh, my brother was a journalist for the Associated Press. So the natural thing to do, especially when you're 18 and you're naive, is just to follow in the footsteps of influential family members and see if you can shape a career around what they what they were doing. Yep. Was, you know, my late to a job, you know, based on their industry connections and so on. So I realized, all right, I better start thinking about, you know, media and broadcast within journalism rather than the print side of things. Right. Um, so I started doing an internship at the radio station, the college radio station. Uh, I convinced the audiovisual technician, the only guy that ran the TV studio, to dust off the cobwebs and allow, allow me to do an internship within the studio and try to <laughs> start creating some community college content around the campus. And <laughs> he thought I was crazy, but it was good. It led to... Um, you know, so the reemergence of the college TV studio there, where we started creating a lot of um, community-oriented content. Um, That's cool. Yeah, 
Yeah. So I just started making like um, the most out of internships. Um, I think that's really where, you know, your industry experience really begins and tells you whether or not you want to continue down that field too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm similar. I, I, like, I also, I did a bunch of stuff on campus. I, like, I, now that I look back and list it all, I, I'm not, I don't know how I actually had time for studying because I was doing, <laughs> I was at the radio station. I was uh, a reporter for the newspaper. I was in the poetry club. I was a, a community advisor. I was, wow. I mean, I had a, I mean, I was playing four, four varsity sports, you know. Wow. Yeah, I was doing a lot, but the radio I station. Like you, you know, I did. I even did the college yearbook. I even did the college yearbook. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we took to all those boxes. I actually also ended up um, one summer. I was because I would always spend the summers at school as well. Like I never, I was almost always in school, regardless of whether it was like the you know the holiday or whatever, I would be, I would figure some way of yeah. being there. And one year, because yeah. I, I think people just saw that I was there so much. The Somebody from the, um, from the bursar's office came over to see me and asked me if I wanted to be um, on the cover of the student application. <laughs> I was like, wow. sure. But now that I think about it, I'm like, damn, that's kind of sad. They, like, like I'm the official uh, mascot, I guess, or something. Somebody had to be the guinea pig, right? Somebody had to be, eh, <laughs> yeah. you know. But I really did love the music. The The radio station was kind of like my favorite place to be because, yeah. it, you know, it was we we had the late shift. It was like from 12 to, to 3 a.m. And we could do whatever we wanted because who was up? Well, listen oh, to yeah. us, right? So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Federal Communications Commission wasn't listening in to uh, – those shows, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have the uh, eight track cartridges that you worked on? That we used yeah, to um, we had those. We had, um, yeah. we were just getting into um, the, uh, M the MD cassettes to the, the, I don't know, we used like every now and then, like we, someone would come to us with like their demo to see if we would yeah. play it. And it was all either, it was either, Eight track, um, radio cassette, or it was like a few dudes started to come in with like these, the these discs, and it was like yeah. right at the end of my career there. So, you know, um, yeah, we had a strange process because it was like an eight track cartridge that only like had enough memory to record like one song on it, oh. or like one commercial or PSA spot. Um, so you'd get maybe four minutes in length out of that one cartridge. So you literally had like thousands. You have thousands of those things, all right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. To play all the music from. And, it's uh, funny. What? Yeah. So you're so early in your career, you're kind of on, on the creative end of of the business. What What led you kind of um, to the business end of the business? What made you decide that was where you wanted to land? Yeah, that's also a long road too, but um, it kind of happened by default. Um, I was living in um, in Europe for a number of years, mainly Switzerland for about seven, seven and a half years. And I was working for a uh, global communications agency there called World Television. Um, now I think they're called WTV, they changed their name. Mm -hmm. um, so I was headquartered in Geneva in Switzerland and I was um, 
two things. I was an executive producer for them and a new business developer. So the executive producing side was more about managing live web streams, you know, video webcasts for these big multinational Fortune 500 companies. We had a lot of United Nations agencies that were headquartered in Geneva that needed uh, content produced for their conferences or live events. Um, so the content management side came, you know, was more familiar with me just based on my college background and experience right. like that. Right. But the new business development part of it was interesting because I never really did like sales and new business before, but it was like a dual role. So they gave me like a three month contract, the company at first, just on a probationary period. Mm -hmm. They had these things uh, called like um, 60%, 80% or 100% of these contracts where um, 60% was you worked like three days a week, 80% was four days a week. And then if things go well for that three month contract, you get a hundred percent full-time position. Right. Uh, which I got because I was able to establish a few clients early on. I've got, I got a few NGOs to come in um, to be new clients, a few new agencies, and then um, maybe one or two like multinationals. Um, so they signed on to do like live video webcast productions with us, which we managed. So I realized, oh, you know, there's some sort of um, ability I have to sort of convince these clients that mm. I can not only manage, you know, the production teams going out and, to produce the content, but I could also sort of be like a client liaison at the same time. And so it was a, you know, at first it was experimental. And then our, that, you know, the duality, that hybrid role sort of became full time. And then when I eventually left uh, Well Television, you know, seven years later, I came back to New York, um, got reinvolved in the film industry. I used to do like, um, like PA jobs, production assistant jobs yep. back in like the late 90s when I was first getting my feet wet in the film industry, but realized I couldn't really shape a career around it quite mm -hmm. quite yet. Right. But when I came back to New York, like in 2015, I realized, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to just dedicate my energy and efforts towards you know learning how to be an independent film producer and all the challenges and pitfalls that come in that process. So I started doing, you know, you know, the creative side, you know, working with writers, working with a few different directors, looking at, um, you know, different talent opportunities for certain projects. Um, but then I realized that nobody was handling the business side, which gets back to your original question. Right. Um, so by default, nobody else took on that role. And I did and just used my sort of new business development skills that I acquired with World Television in Switzerland um, towards sort of speaking to investors, doing these, you know, PowerPoint presentations on what a film finance business plan should look like. Um, you know, what's referred to as a pitch deck or a lookbook. Um, start, you know, being sort of the point person between the creatives and the finance. Right. Um, that bridge, you know, bridging that gap. Because um, what I found very early on was that a lot of, um, you know, potential financiers or, or investors were not interested in how wonderful the script was coming from the writer or the director. They were more interested in how am I going to make my money back and what's the, what's the possibility of even collecting interest on my principal investment. Yeah. Right. Uh, so in a very transparent way, I had to learn um, to be to be honest and open about that process. Um, but I went to the Cannes Film Festival. I went to the Berlin Film Festival. I went to the American Film Market. I took that producer workshop program. So I learned the ins and outs of the business side just through these five day you know workshop panel, speaker panel discussions they had there, and right. um, learned about European co productions and how that works and. Um, just got to start digging in the trenches more and more and learning all of the things that, you know, essentially aren't taught to you in film schools. Um, Which is a lot. Yeah. 
That's a great amount. What do you, um, what do you think, um, what do you think are some of the biggest kind of, you know, what what common belief do you believe that people have about film development process that you think needs to be kind of updated or or at least edu- ed- re-educated? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the traditional approach is that if you're a screenwriter, you would option the rights to your script, uh, let's say for one year, to another um, production company that could possibly you know, package the entire project. In other words, they would uh, source financing if there's a real interest in within their financing network um, to make that script into a film. So they would be responsible for, you know, attaching the actors, um, making script changes. Um, they have that complete ownership over the script. So the writer essentially loses all their rights um, during that option period. Right. Um, so what's not taught about is the writer who could be the director as well, you know, taking on the reins themselves and saying, listen, I want to control the intellectual property rights and the chain of title for this story because it's my baby, it's my vision, it's what I wrote. I don't want somebody coming in, optioning it, changing the whole story around and doing the story they want to tell. I want to tell the story I want to tell. And right. So with the film startup platform, we basically, um, you know, teach through education workshops that the writer, director, whoever owns the intellectual property of the story maintains the rights of creative control throughout the whole life cycle of the project, you know, throughout writing, throughout casting, development, packaging, you know, production and then distribution. Um, so the advantage there is you're not selling the rights and just getting a small fee, especially if you're not part of the Writers Guild of America, if you're not part of the union, um, then you're not really getting paid much for that option, right? You just right. get a small fee. Um, so, I mean, I'm not opposed to the traditional optioning rights or doing a shopping agreement with the script to other production companies that are looking to, you know, take control of it and produce it on their own. But I think what's not really talked about is the education around, you know, taking over the, the range yourself as a filmmaker, you as the auteur, the writer, director, you know, maintaining creative control throughout that whole life cycle of the, of the project. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's a weird situation because if you go to a networking event and you talk to a lot of, you know, filmmakers, especially like the either the young ones or the ones who are just in or kind of inexperienced, one of their greatest fears is the fact that they think everyone's going to steal their idea or everyone's going to steal, you know. But then, but if you have a further conversation with them, you don't get the sense that they understand how they can help prevent that as well, right? It's right. it's kind of like they know it exists, but they're not equipped to, to to even come close to protecting their IP. Right. Yeah. It's it's scary. Yeah. I mean, generally, you're fine in most circumstances as a screenwriter, um, you know, as a feature in that final draft screenwriting program, you know, where you can essentially just um, copyright the script with the WGA, you know, through the uh, feature within the final draft program. Right. Um, so once you feel like you've got close to a final script written, then you go through that copywriting process. And once you get that 
WGA number put on the bottom left side of the title page of your script, you're, you're well protected. And in most situations, you wouldn't um, have to send out a non-disclosure agreement necessarily to send out the script to a production company executive you've never worked with before. Right. Um, yeah, so I think those cases are rare. I mean, it does happen, but, um, you know, it really has to be in the script phase and not the idea phase for something yep. to be, you know, copyrighted officially, of course. So. Yeah, I used yeah. to hear like complaints from uh, from in, like potential investors. I used to hear complaints from them that it's like, oh, every time I get a screenplay from some dude, he's always sending me an NDA. I'm yeah. not signing that NDA. What's wrong with him? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but he, you know, you got to understand it from his side of the. He doesn't. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand that. Like, I, look to your point, it, it has changed a lot more because the act, the yeah. the software allows you to kind of do it, and it's much easier to. And pretty much yeah. anyone worth their salt, if if will point you like right there, they'll go look. When you have something, make sure it's registered. Don't wait. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's it's more it's it is the the information is more circulated and used to be and the access is much more readily available which is cool so yeah and just another point to the script writing process i think it's also good to be mindful of you know what kind of budget are you writing here right are you writing a script not being mindful of um you know cgi special effects stunts you know long drawn out dialogue you know scenes with babies or children anything that's going to kind of delay you know, your first feature film from potentially being financed because the budget is unrealistic and it's not something that's done on a smaller scale, it's done on something that's much larger because you're not really conscious of, you know, writing from a production mindset, you're writing from a creative mindset, which is fine if you're in the early draft stage. But when you get the later draft stage, it's good to work with, um, you know, a line producer that manages production and thinks about, you know, how is the script being broken down from a financial point of view in terms of what the final budget would be when you're trying to raise financing and going that route. Yeah. That's the question I get a lot of, from a lot of um, like new screenwriters and stuff. And is like, it, like if they're taking on the mantle of putting the film together and they're like, Oh, so how do I know how much to charge for this and how much I budget for this? And how I'm like, well, you yeah. should probably have a line producer working with you on this, probably. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know if you want to guesstimate. <laughs> I mean, because yeah. you could be like, I don't know how much big, how big your budget's going to be, but it could be a huge difference and you get down the end of the road and yeah. you run out of money. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Yeah, that line producer, um, should really be somebody experienced with a good track record that's done a number of features before. Um, they'll import the script into a program called Movie Magic. Yep. And then they'll export it as, um, you know, both the shooting schedule and the budget. Um, and they can give you different levels. They can give you, you know, two to three different budget options, you know, sort of a low, mid, and high. If you think there's actually potential to cast, you know, more well-known actors to the film, obviously that increases the budget. So that would be more of the high-budget realm. Right. Um, I think generally you're thinking, you know, a low low budget if it's if it's your first indie feature that you're that you're producing. 
Yeah, no one gets that yeah. lucky anymore. Only Jordan Peele gets that lucky. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, the rare exceptions are there. Yeah. yeah. Um, what? Um, what? What? What are some? What's the biggest piece of advice that you give um, storytellers who are? you know like that who you come across on your site like because i feel like you probably get a lot of different types like they're like creative storytellers at different stages that may, maybe some are right where they need to be and this is who you should be working with versus a dude who like you know he's got a script but he hasn't shot anything yet he's never done anything you know like what piece does the advice vary as far as the most valuable piece of advice that you can give a person or is there something that you see people doing in general that you kind of say hey here's here's something helpful that would probably be useful for you as a piece of knowledge before talking to me yeah it's a great question it's probably a multifaceted answer i mean mm -hmm. i think First and foremost, you're always writing what you know and what you're really passionate about, especially if it's your first feature that you're looking to produce. Um, I would get a lot of different objective script coverage reports. A script coverage report is like a series of notes, um, whether it's from a production company, another producer, a development executive, uh, or if you go on another platform like you know Stage 32 or The Blacklist. Right. Um, you can get script coverage reports and try to get maybe, you know, I say around like half a dozen mm. from like neutral objective people that don't know you, you know, they're not your family, they're not your friends, they're not just patting you on the back saying, you know, good job on writing the script. Right. Um, then look at if there's a common theme on the script coverage report notes from those six different sources. Mm. Are they all telling you to, you know, we all to the protagonist's through line or the narrative structure of the script in certain ways or the antagonist isn't working. There's something that's obvious is coming back in the notes and it's repetitive. All right. Then most likely you're going to take that seriously and make that part of your next script rewrite on the next draft. Yeah. Um, you know, and there may be some small or other notes that could also be changed within the script. Um, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to make all the changes that come back. Um, but notes that are good are also going to contain, you know, um, their sort of general overview on what the budget's going to be. Right. So that'll make you think about, all right, I don't need to shoot this, you know, West Cam helicopter sequence over an aircraft carrier. We can cut that scene because we're not doing Top Gun here. So, <laughs> um, you know, let's think about keeping this production on the shoreline and not going out to the sea uh, to film that sequence, for example, you know. Um, but I think when you're enthusiastic and you're first screenwriting, the, you know, the creative juices are flowing and you're not really conscious of what's affecting the production budget at a much higher level. And, um, and then just keep rewriting. I mean, a, a script is never done. It's never even done when you're actually filming. So I think you've got to, you're constantly kind of rewriting. You're living with that script. You know, it's like, it's like your child, you know, you're just sort of um, mm. nurturing it, you're guiding it, um, you're raising it. And it's going to change maybe even quite a bit from the time that you write it to the time it actually goes into production, which could be five, 10 years later, even, you know, right. Um, right. You know, your consciousness as a writer has changed, so the story is going to change at the same time. And don't just keep it, you know, on the shelf, you know, collecting dust um, because nobody's interested. Just keep working at it. And that's also honing your craft at the same time. You know, the more rewrites you're doing, the more you're writing on a consistent basis and the more you're 
probably leading into other writing opportunities for writing the next script and the one after that. Um, it's hard if you're like a part-time writer, if it's something that you're doing, but you're running like a commercial agency at the same time, it's your full-time job and you're just dipping your toes in the water once in a while, right. you know, getting that script wet. Um, I think writing is something like learning a new language or playing an instrument, you know, it's every day, uh, it, has to, it has to be every day, really. Um, cause it's part of you and it's part of the storytelling process and, um, hmm. yeah, part-time writing or writing as a hobby doesn't necessarily lead to the most concrete results I find. Um, if you so find it's, a finish line, it would be many You recommend them being kind of an all-in situation if, if possible. Or just say to yourself, you know, I enjoy writing, but I don't have the time necessarily to get into the nuts and bolts of writing the script and final draft and movie magic. Um, but what, what you could do is you could just take a storyboard credit and work on the initial treatment or the synopsis. And the treatment could be quite long. It could be 15, 20 pages long. Work with the writer on that process. And then when the treatment is honed in and finished, the writer will go on to working on the actual script itself. So it's not you like going through you know, the template, the format, and all the nuances of final draft every day. It's the writer that's more of a full-time writer doing that. And you're just taking your story by credit and they're taking a written by and a story by credit themselves. Mm. So that's kind of the way I like to function when I get involved in storytelling. Cause I know I've got to make a living. I've got to do other things with film startup, you know, I've got to manage other projects. So for me to realistically say, Hey, I'm putting in 20 or 30 hours a week of learning a script. It's probably right. not very re realistic at all. And... I feel like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's an ego por there's an ego portion of uh, within people that like of the right of the people that I know who are filmmakers who also write their own stuff. I feel like like to me what you just said is absolutely a great way of going. But I something tells me their egos won't allow them sometimes to kind of get because it's almost like they're like losing control when they're not losing control at all they're basically it's almost you know it's like having a babysitter you know yeah. you're not suddenly giving up your kid to this this person is coming in taking care of the kid while you do what you need to do and at the end you come back and she goes home and you everybody's happy it's mm -hmm. a similar similar process and but yeah. i think there's a lot of ego in it for a lot of people that you know doesn't allow them to see the big picture i think that ego you know sort of um is also delusion and i used to mm. say to myself every time i met you know like screenwriters or people that are very egotistical like like you mentioned i used mm -hmm. to say to myself this is just very unrealistic there's no way this project's getting off the ground right but i think for most successful filmmakers you know writers directors producers and so on i think um they had to be delusional. They had to be egotistical to make it in this business. They weren't. True. They probably would have dropped out, you know, went on to different careers, um, just ran the commercial ad agency, whatever job they were doing, and just given up altogether on, um, you know, their real passions, um, you know, their real love of filmmaking. And, uh, you know, granted, delusion can go too far and people can really get trapped in that rabbit hole and not get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I think it does take a certain amount of ego and, and delusional sort of thinking um, to have some degree of success. It may even be small, but to have some success in industry, I think you have to be just sort of um, wearing the blinders, yeah, you know, and just looking in one direction. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I've come to, in retrospect, looking back at experiences with many different filmmakers, that's kind of the um, thoughts or conclusion I've come to. Yeah. No, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of filmmakers will have gotten into the industry because you know they had there was a you know someone they looked up to or somebody that they aspired to be like or they had a mentor of some sort who were some mentors or role, industry role models that you kind of looked towards as you were kind of growing yeah i mean early stage like it you know um within my film minor program in Orneanto, we studied all the famous you know, filmmakers, which really gets your juices flowing from the creative side, which is, you know, Orson Welles and Igmar Bergman and Federico Fellini, um, you know, and getting into um, studying movies like The Graduate, yep. you know, with Dustin Hoffman and understanding the mechanics of how the directors and filmmakers, I think that was Mike Lee, um, the, uh, the graduate, the director of that one. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the early influential people. Um, but then looking at more of like, um, you know, the art house folks like the Woody Allens and Jim Jarmusch's of the world. Um, Hal Hartley, who was sort of a famous independent filmmaker in the 90s, early 2000s. And um, that made me think that, you know, it's it is possible to do low independent avant-garde films, you know, for a minuscule comparison to what the, the big budget, you know, traditional Hollywood movies are made for. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so those were influential people in terms of like creators, directors, and um, yeah. But I mean, I think a lot of people will cite like you know Jason Blumhouse and the Blumhouse model, which you're familiar with, and yeah, you know, just doing those one million dollar horror indies because it's a formula that works, and just keep repeating that over and over again. Once you find your your magic formula, you stick to it, and yep, you know, you don't uh, re reinvent the wheel. Um, right. Yeah. They very rarely lose money. I would keep that formula going all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a question if you want to take that risk and go into the big budget realms like M. Night Shyamalan has done or um, Jordan Peele has done. Right. You know, you're still creating that same kind of movie, but the production value is that much higher and the risk is that much higher. But yep. that's just a natural transition to that world, I suppose. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's to your point, it's, you know, Regardless of what you happen to do in the industry, uh, and by industry I mean TV, film, you know, um, regardless of what your job happens to be, whether you're in front of the camera or behind the camera, it's all driven by the fact that you know it, there is there is ego that has to drive it, and I think that while you could be satisfied with doing six million dollar budgeted films that end up bringing back, you know, 25, 30 million dollars, which is a great return. Right? I mean, it's a great return. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's always kind of like a little bit of that ego to say, can I conquer, can, can I conquer more? Can I do bigger? And it's not a bad thing. To you know, it's like you said, it, it's kind of a necessary evil, right? I mean, it's it, it is part of it's it, it. You know, I don't think you have Hollywood without those guys to that kind of dared to do impossible things. 
So, yeah, I mean, to, to cite like a contemporary example, I just finished watching that series called The Offer on uh, Paramount mm-hmm. Plus about the making of The Godfather. The yeah, Godfather. how was that? I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm not a huge Godfather movie fan myself, but they really mm-hmm. captured the industry side of it really well. I mean, coming from a studio perspective, of course. Um, but I was really like tuned in to um, the head of production, um, you know, running the Paramount Studios and um, giving the creative green light on The Godfather to be made and all the crazy nuances that um, Al Ruddy, the producer of The Godfather, had to go through. And that's a real exaggerated example of what it's like to be a producer industry but it really shows you that um so much in the industry is just like it's like this film doesn't want to get made there's a famous quote about like a film does everything in its power not to get made yeah you know, because there's all these obstacles all these challenges and all these things working against it all right you're always swimming against the tide you never you know you're always swimming against the current upstream and um yeah i definitely recommend watching the offer even if you're not interested in the godfather itself which is what it's like behind the scenes of you know the movie studio world and all the egos that get involved like we talked about all the mm-hmm. behavior and uh the money involved and um yeah so even on a small level there's a lot of that because i think people think like on the same like a delusion the ego is still the same whether it's a low budget film or high right. budget film, that's the right. existing way yeah 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 well i i I don't remember the last time. I don't, I don't recall the last time I've heard a story from a filmmaker about a production or like an effort to put the film a film together that just went perfect. Like everything just worked out well. Oh yeah, got the money within the first week, and we were shooting, and it only took us thirteen days. And you know, we yeah, I, I it just that's like never. It's ne- it never happens. It's never going to happen. There's always, and, and to your point, there's, there's always going to be like that one or two films that, no matter how hard they tried to get something done, there was always another huge hurdle, and, you know, yeah, it kind of leads me into the politics of the industry a little bit. If you, if you want to touch into that area, I don't mind. Sure. Yeah, chiming in because that's really a big part of this. That's really the foundational issue. Like. Um, in my workshop courses, I always compare the differences between, you know, making a film in Canada or Europe, for example, versus right. in the States. And you, know, you have this access to all these subsidies and incentives and tax credit programs and development funds, you know, in the European industry and the Canadian industry. Um, you know, Canada and Europe do a lot of co-productions together. They're getting, you know, governmental, you know, federal, regional, cantonal sort of funding um, you know, through the film commission offices to actually, you know, pay for development to get a development package together. So the film even, you know, stands a chance of getting made because um, the people writing the script, developing it, packaging it, you know, putting the budgets and schedules together and retaining cast, um, you know, they're working from a development budget, you know, in the European industry or the Canadian industry. Whereas in the States, the only way you can really do that is to crowdfund, which a lot of filmmakers don't want to do. Yeah. Um, and you can really only do it once because you don't want to ask people necessarily for the money again and again. Right. So if you're doing it from the subsidies point of view, producing a film in, in Canada, you know, or um, or European country, you're really taking advantage of the subsidies, and it's something we don't really have, you know, unfortunately, there's very limited funds. I mean, there's grant programs and things, 
a few film commission offices in the states will have some grant programs you can apply for but there's a lot of competition for that and it's not necessarily a lot of money that's going to really support the development stage of the film um you know also in europe and canada the um tv broadcasters um dedicated about five percent of their revenue towards um towards the arts and independent filmmaking so that's where money is being funneled from to support you know different independent film projects right. um unfortunately u.s doesn't have any co-productions in any countries so uh, yeah that's a big uh, question mark as to why that exists um a lot of people feel like it's just they don't want the studios losing control the six major studios that produce about 90 percent of all the movies and tv series content in this country if there was more access to funds for independent film projects to come through that may take away from the studio control and their model and um what yeah. would it you know independent films would influence people's thinking in a different way outside the hollywood model right, right. in hollywood and you know there's a lot of different um you know paths to go down in that discussion it can get very political um but i think you as the american independent filmmaker naturally at a disadvantage because you don't have the co-production funding you don't have the development funding access you don't have the tv broadcasters supporting independent films which um, is insane yeah. yeah yeah because we are viewed as a wealthy country you know and um to not support the arts in that capacity is a real yeah, they're always trying to cut funding for um for for the nea so there's that i mean every time you know yeah but it's yeah. it's always the you know one of the one of the sticking points when it comes to like getting certain things passed in congress and it's always the thing being put on the chopping block as a sacrifice yeah which is terrible because it, and it does again it doesn't make sense because right the industry is um industry is a major contrib contribution to not just art in this country but economics in this country right. why why wouldn't you want to help drive it yeah i mean the good news is uh, you know we have the tax credit returns the cash rebates in, in right. certain states in this country um, right. so you can actually move your production to a higher tax credit zone in upstate new york or georgia or louisiana or new mexico for example um you know and, and save at least you know or at least have a guaranteed return that you may be able to recoup you know 30 percent, for example on what the tax credit return is going to give you for filming in that particular county of, of that state um but that's really your only you know sort of guaranteed return for the most part mm. um there is something called section 181 which is a tax write-off for um high net worth individuals that sort of fall in that 40 percent tax bracket zone of um, taxable income at 40 percent um so like for what like so for if if a millionaire or billionaire decided to put together a film or something or yeah, they don't necessarily have to be a millionaire. They can just have a sort of um, annual income um, that sort of puts them in a higher tax bracket. Oh, okay. I, I think it's like the 40% tax bracket zone. Um, so if their income falls under that threshold, um, their accountant could advise them to invest in an independent feature film that's most likely going to lose oh, money. Right, right. Like four out of five independent films lose money in this country and 80%. So I think you're looking at investors that are not necessarily uh looking to generate a profit from their investment but maybe it's a tax write-off 
I was I saw some yeah. article that was on LinkedIn. Um, actually, this is the second or third article I've seen recently, saying that VCs are now looking at film as a great investment place for them. And is that true? I mean, yeah, I guess it depends on how you define the word great, but I mean, um, you know, sometimes you're looking to diversify your portfolio and you're looking at entertainment as an alternative asset um, to write off, you know, a certain amount of income or loss income, right. um, whether the individual investor is doing that or a production company is doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, more and more content's being produced, of course, but um, the real issue is just like how many middlemen are involved. Like, um, mm. you know, the sales agent will take 30% of all distribution revenue. Right. If there's, a, if there's a theatrical release, you can tack on like another 20, 25% there for the exhibitor fees involved. Right. Right there, you're at a loss of like half of your profitability. And now you've got to pay back your investors plus 20% interest. Um, and you're in a situation where maybe an investor loaned against that tax credit in order to finance the film. Right, right. You got to pay right. him back plus maybe. 15% interest, for example. So how much is actually left in terms of profitability for you, the filmmakers, the writer, director, producers team um, to actually, you know, see any profitability. So I think the middleman equation is a, a big problem too. You know, agents are getting paid, of course, you know, and they're getting their fees and right. um, there's all kinds of finders fees for people that actually find the private equity. They take a small percentage of that money as a finder's fee. Um, right. You know, so, you know, if there's a way to eliminate the middleman agency fees. I think it's it can lead to at least maybe the film trying to come closer to recouping or the TV series for that matter. Um, mm. Yeah. I feel yeah. I feel like they're always trying to get rid of the middleman, but the middleman always seems to move. Just you can't get rid of them. You just move them farther down the line. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to take the real, a real estate agent out of the equation between the right. seller and the buyer of the house right they're always going to be there right you know? so it's like you're not taking the sales agent that has a relationship to the theaters and the distributors out of the equation because then maybe the film doesn't get distributed at least to the extent that you want it to although you have like those platforms that are like the you know the that now offer what they consider direct to buyer access for films and and, and content now i guess yeah, Vuller is one of them. It's yep. spelled um, V-U-U-L-R. Um, they're a direct-to-buyer uh, platform. So you, you as a filmmaker, essentially become the sales agent. Right. And then you um, negotiate the licensing rights of your content, which could be a feature film, you know, documentary, a TV series. And the idea is that you're licensing the rights to as many buyers around the 50 different territories throughout the world that are looking to acquire content you know, for their editorial program on their, at their TV station or for a theatrical release or TV broadcast release or streaming VOD platform for that matter. And then uh, once you agree on the middle price, you know, you're going to come in high, they're going to come in low and you're going to meet in the middle. Right. You, know, you do a transaction and then Buller takes like a 10% transaction fee on the platform side. Um, so you want to account for that 10% fee. So build in your price a little bit higher if you can when you're trying right. to sell. Well, okay. uh, yeah. So if someone does this, who's, I guess it depends on the deal, but who's doing the marketing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, 
once you sell the rights to the content to that buyer, uh, whether it's a sales agent, streaming VOD platform, um, you know, TV station, they're basically taking over the marketing licensing rights within their respective territory. They may rebrand it, you know, according to their local language. There may be subtitles involved. They'll do all the marketing internally on their side. Hmm. Um, so you're taking out what's you know traditionally referred to as the P&A costs, the principal right. fees, right? Which is kind of ridiculous because nobody's really printing as much material out <laughs> as much as they used to, you know. So yeah, let me print up some of those billboard ads all over the place, full-page newspaper ads. Yeah, no one's reading yeah, those anymore. We are in the computer age, and everything is digital essentially. So right, the P&A fees shouldn't really be as high as they used to be, but they still are for some reason. And um, but yeah, I mean, the, the sales agent would take on that responsibility, the distributor, and um, and it's uh, it's usually a separate budget item uh, within the overall budget of the film. It's sort of at the, at the, the bottom of the uh, the budget as light on, light on costs in terms of what the P and A fees would be. And, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. What um what um. What is the best advice you ever received um, from a business standpoint? Yeah, another great question. I have to think about that one. Um, yeah, it's probably come from a variety of people, and you know, it's probably um, a combination of different uh, forms of advice. But um, you know, I think tenacity, um, some degree of aggressiveness. Um, a real belief in yourself and your abilities um, you're not losing hope um, you know ba a balanced perspective um, you know being a good team player um, you know when you're making a film it's really like uh, building a family and that starts in development so I think if you can um, really nurture the relationships early stage development with the right people that are committed to seeing the project through development like development is really the hardest part that's when films are made a broken and unfortunately most of them are broken in development and, and that's really because it wasn't really a team around that development stage there wasn't somebody supporting the writer and director mm. in terms of a development executive which is a role i play or another producer or line mm. producer or entertainment attorney or a casting director all these people that are in development early stage maybe weren't really you know on board to begin with so they fall out or they're not being compensated or retained properly right. within a working development budget. Um, so yeah, I guess the emphasis on you know development and, and stressing a lot of importance on development instead of just saying I've gotten a script done and I'm ready to go into production. You know, look at the A to Z process. You know, everything in between before you actually get into pre-production. And um, hmm. yeah, that's sort of like the sentiments I've received. You know. Um, how Nothing. soon do you get? Yeah. How soon do you get involved in the process? Or, or better question: How soon do you think an, the development executive should get be there? Uh, pretty early stage. So even when the script is um, going through its final sort of um, rewrite phase, uh, the first thing I do is I give a script coverage report to the writer. They may or may not take some of my changes into account. Uh, and then we get into the final script phase where we actually can officially begin development. Um, so yeah, once the writing process is close to finished, I, I come on board and just try to move that train out of the station. I'll bring in uh, 
you know, line producer to do the budgeting and scheduling, you know, a casting director to work on just retaining the, uh, the two leading actors or three leading actors of the film. We do a lot of cash wish list and uh, outreach to agents and managers um, through the casting director. Then I'll do a lot on the business affairs side with the entertainment attorney. Right. We'll start shaping the, uh, we'll incorporate the production into a limited liability corporation, an LLC uh, through the attorney. And then we'll do an operating agreement and then eventually work on all the cast and crew contracts. Um, yeah, and then I'll bring in a creative director to do all the marketing, pitch deck, lookbook materials. Um, so I essentially sort of project manage or consult and advise, you know, about all the steps of development. And then um, if we have a pretty solid package put together, even including analysis from a company that does analysis like National Information Services or um, Slated or another company that's using artificial intelligence to do their analysis called Logo. Um, we'll include that analysis and projections on how the film is projected to do in terms of revenue returns across the board. And then once we have a solid sort of investor presentation put together with all this material, then I'll go out to, you know, select people in my network where I think they could be a match or at least some level of interest and say, you know, what do you think of this package? Um, so the package is really the crucial component. It's not just, obviously, not just the script. It's all those elements that are, you know, built through in development, and, um, which can take years, you know. Yeah, you know, it takes a long time. And, uh, it just occurs to me that um, I think the the one re like the reason why that filmmakers who make the jump from shorts and low budget indies, mm -hmm. um, because when you're doing shorts and low budget indies you don't necessarily use a development executive, right? You know, it's, right. you know, it's, you know, it is what it is. And I think, you know, the, you know, these, these creators, when they want to make the step to the next level, I think that's probably not even on their, on their mind that the, that along with a bigger budget becomes, comes more, process i guess yeah. if that yeah. makes sense and that's that's something that can be crippling to a film if you don't get all, to all that right you know like to your point early in the early yeah. early early in the stages right yeah i think the title development executive is not um quite clear like people might have heard of development executive in the confines of acquisitions at right. a production company, like development and acquisitions, but nobody actually knows what like the development executive themselves do, you know, from start to finish. <laughs> and, um, cause a lot of producers don't want to get involved in the release stage. They don't want to be involved in spending all the time on packaging the script when they're not being compensated for it, or they don't see the ne uh, necessary potential, you know, right. after going through a few years of development and packaging, like, is this ever going to get made? And, because quite often there's no development budget to work work on to pay, you know, the producer. Uh, and I also noticed too that, and I don't know if this is just recently, but the definition of a producer seems yeah. to be a very loose term. Like it can be different things to different 
people. Like for one dude, it's just, I just want to find money. You know, for another dude, it's I'm the guy who can connect you to different pieces of the puzzle. You know, you know, so I think that's a little bit, I think that needs to be fixed too, because sure. When you have so many different versions of what a producer is, when as as a undeveloped creator, and you find this person as a producer, you may think you're getting a traditional producer, when in reality you're just getting a networker, or you might be just getting a cash machine, you know, and that could, yeah, you know, if you find out that too late, you know, it's too late. Yeah, sometimes, like you said, the producer is just somebody connecting, you know, the director, um, you know, or the writer, uh, for example, to an, an agent, an agency to try to get that actor attached. So it's more like a special thanks credit on IMDb than actually producing yeah. Yeah. Um, because they do that kind of favor in the background. Right. Um, you know, if it's an executive producer that's sourcing financing uh, for the production, they're not involved in any way. And in the production, typically, they're just, you know, the money people that are bringing right. you know, equity to the project or getting a debt loan from a, a bank's entertainment division, like a gap financing loan to, to round out the final portion of the film's budget. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, in the old days, you used to just have, you know, one or two producers involved. Right. Um, you look at Godfather two and Godfather three, for example, like there's no producers. <laughs> you know, Al Ruddy left after the first Godfather was made, and Francis Ford Coppola took on that title of writer, director, producer, and right. So, if movies like that can be essentially made with little or no producers involved, why do we have these small independent films with like six to eight producers, you know, on the above the line side of the budget, all trying to take a piece of the pie, right? Um, yeah. Before the film was ever even made, you know, um, it's got to be a finance thing, right? I mean, that's. It's a, you know, they, they're trying to put together these, their budgets. It's just a matter of, we need money. And these six people, are, you know, assembled, um, give us the money, you know, and, and it's kind of like, you know, a, almost a deal with the devil almost in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's really just about name lending. You know, yeah. this producer puts his name as a mentor, you know, behind the project that isn't actively engaged in production in any way. Right. Uh, the filmmakers are hopeful that that name will help, you know, raise financing because that producer had some prior success with right. a film or a documentary or a series before, which is, you know, certainly a strategy worth exploring if you feel like you need mentoring producers to um, help guide you, you know, the first time you're doing a feature film or the first time you're doing a TV series pilot. Right. Um, that's certainly helpful to have that mentor. I know I had a few mentors involved that I learned from um, on the financing side and how to deal with investors and all the documentation that comes with that process. And, right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think you should really find a point person if you are the creative person to find a point person that's a development executive or a producer that's handling the finance negotiations. You shouldn't be involved in that, you know, to such an extent that it takes you away from the process of casting the film and finalizing the script and working with the actors and so on and so forth so yeah yeah i agree yeah. it does help that you, you it, it helps that you know what you're looking for when you're looking for these people and yeah yeah and you know it's kind of like if you were a sports like i, I was watching um 
you know, it's opening week for the NFL's training. Um, and they were talking about uh, Lamar Jackson, one of the, the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. And they were talking about how he's negotiating his own contract. And I'm like, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> that seems like a bad idea. <laughs> um, because yeah. I feel like you can't negotiate on that level part-time. This has to be your job. It can't be you're like going back because I mean, it is kind of complicated and I think for film, it's kind of similar, right? I think you just need somebody to your point is that can handle all of this other stuff while you as the director can direct and create and be, make sure that end of the stick. It's almost like having a partnership. Your partner is going to handle one, one end of the business that you don't want to handle. You don't like it. It's not your favorite. You don't have the time for it. Let them deal with that. Yeah. I mean, you may come into a situation where you have like three producers, one producer is handling, you know, talent acquisition because of their relationships with agencies like CAA, UTA, William Morris and Gersh, and they have relationships with the casting directors right. that can at least get the package into the actor's hands. Right. You may have um, a producer specifically just handling monetization of the project and has relationships to certain investors. So they're handling things more from the executive producer side. And you may have a producer that just handles like distribution. Like when the film is made, they're going to, you know, help market the film at film festivals and they're going to, um, you know, take it on tour and identify the right sales agent or distributor for the project. Um, you know, I think if you have three solid producers all on that sort of, um, that same realm that can support the project because not every producer has all three of those skills necessarily. Right. Right. And there's benefits to, um, you know, having, you know, multiple producers on board, um, but really identify what their skills and strengths are, you know, before they officially come mm. on board and they sign a contract with you and, um, and know that they can deliver. They may just bounce and go off to another project that may seem more light at the end of the tunnel, end of the yeah. tunnel you know, in terms of getting some compensation for themselves and, um, yeah, so that's definitely uh, you know a strong tip of advice to to consider who your producers are, you know, during early stage development. So, um, yeah. film startup is has like an educational proponent to it. Who 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 is this? Who is this for? What is this? Who is this for? Is this for wannabe producers? Is this for filmmakers? Um, yeah, I think it's a mix of both. I think it's, um, you know, students that may have come out of a recent film school program, even a graduate program, and they're embarking on their first time feature, but they haven't really learned a whole lot, you know, from this film school program on the business side of things. So the workshop courses, which are up to six hours long, you know, broken into three modules um, through the film startup platform and, uh, Development is two hours, packaging is two hours, financing is two hours. And I sort of segue all three of those modules, you know, together, they're all kind of married to each other. Um, but we do have some older filmmakers too that are looking to, um, you know, approach filmmaking from a, a different strategy. Maybe they were traditionally optioning their script rights and previous projects they're working on. They're looking at what's the alternative way of getting this film made. Um, but it's really, it really does start with the education. It just goes, it just goes through the process of understanding what development is after your script is complete, and who all the key department heads are in development. 
you know, we always talk about key department heads in production, but who are the key department heads in development? Um, those six to eight folks, you know, that shape that early stage family that incubate the project, not just you trying to do everything and wear all those hats. Right. Um, yeah, but I do classes um, at different film festivals and with the Gotham. Some of, some of you might be familiar with the Gotham, which used to be IFP. Oh, yeah, Gotham Writers. Yeah. Uh, done a guest lecture with NYU's Tisch program with their undergraduates. So sometimes um, a university will bring me in to do a guest lecture um, to kind of sort of fill in some of those gaps on the curriculum that's not taught within their film courses at their school. And, um, yeah, I did one out in Vancouver, which was really cool because I got a chance to talk about like Canadian and European co-productions. Oh, right. What, what it's like to produce and develop films and in Vancouver in the British Columbia market and so that was a lot of fun. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. I like the I think the um, you know, I know for filmmakers they want to jump in and start doing it just want to make it happen, but sometimes it's it's good to have this knowledge base, you know, um it, like even if you're never going to use it, right? Well, let's just say you 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 take this, it's yeah. in you, you don't go and use it, but it at least helps you identify producers that you should be working with because then you'll have you'll be, be able to ask them intelligent questions um, about who they are, what they do, what their process is, you know, all these different things that are important for you to kind of ascertain right. um, whether they're the right person for your project. Yeah, I mean, you Filmmakers would be surprised. Like there's sometimes that there's older mentors um, that have, are established and produced their films. They're just looking to give back, you right? Know? Uh, and they're willing to dedicate and volunteer some of their time to, you know, meet up for a cup of coffee and just talk about their experiences and what went wrong and what went right, you know, with their project projects down through the years and mm. be a guide and be a mentor and um, you know not expect to be credited or compensated in any way. So there are. You know, people that do that um so i think it's something to to be mindful of you know when you're trying to find the right mentor for your project yeah uh, yeah before, before you go yeah i i did not know this about you i didn't know two things about you one i didn't know that you were into like metaphysics and consciousness and that that sort of thing one and two i didn't know you were working on a book <laughs> yeah yeah, that's the other side of me. Yeah, that's right. It's such yeah. a cool subject. Can you can you tell a little bit about it? Yeah, you know, sometimes to my own detriment, I hide in the closet on these because <laughs> they're very taboo. You know, when you think of the word metaphysics, people just don't quite know what it means. Is it something supernatural or spiritual? Right. Consciousness. Right. But I enrolled in a program uh, with the University of Metaphysical Sciences uh, early last year. And I'm doing their sort of online degree program uh, to see where it will lead. Like potentially, since I'm already teaching, you know, film industry workshops, can I teach topics and subject matter around metaphysical topics around consciousness and uh, physics and nature of the universe, philosophical discussions. That's cool. Um, yeah, a lot of different spiritual topics. Um, and then... Uh, my thesis for that program was kind of led into um, dissertation, which has led into more of like a full-fledged book project, which looks at 
um, the nature of reality from, from, from like a literal and abstract perspective. Right. Whether or not we're actually living in a virtual reality, a, a virtual simulation, which has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm doing like a series of case studies on whether or not um, certain aspects of our life indicate we're living in a virtual computational existence versus something that's referred to as the base reality, the real reality. Um, simulation and simulacra. Yeah, Nick Bostrom wrote a great paper called The Simulation Argument about 20 years ago. We've started this like chain of events, you know, for people like Max Tegmark and Elon Musk to come out mm. and more public and write and speak about, you know, the idea that uh, everything that we experience in the universe and this planet is sort of like a computer in a way. And we're just mm. sort of avatars or participants in that universe beyond anything that gives us free will. It's more like a cause and effect or deterministic process. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, that that rang true to me when um when the Matrix came out. When the Matrix yeah. came out, I must I I'm pretty sure I saw that movie in the theaters eleven times. Oh wow! Because wow. because the more you watch it, the more a lot of it makes sense, and and then you start have to question. You have to start questioning some stuff. Right, and that's. You know, first of all, I'm going to say is if this is a program, I got a really shitty user or something, man, because because there are a lot of things happening. Sometimes I'm like, that that's not cool, man. That's just not cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I love the fact that you're doing it. I, I think I I can talk science and and that kind of nerdy stuff all day long. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a long. Um, and so a theoretical process to draw conclusions. I think a lot of what I'm doing is theorizing and researching and sort of right. postulating on what could be possible, um, which is great because it's mm. not based on, you know, belief systems or, you know, inherent programming conditioning that we're growing up with. It's like looking at, um, you know, the world from the outside in versus the inside out. Right. Um, cause quite often we get stuck in this, like you said, matrix really, you right. know, and we don't know how to get out of it. We're just doing what we're doing every day. We're not really consciously aware of, okay, are my actions based on my own free will or am I doing something that's controlling me right, right. in a deterministic fashion? Um, but some people say, you know, it doesn't matter whether we live in a simulation or not because it's not going to change who I am or how I'm living or what I'm doing. Um, but just the whole theory behind it, I think it's fascinating to explore. Um, regardless of what level of interest you have, just raising the question is such a philosophical debate, I guess. You know? I think it yeah. it it meets the level of back, you know, in you know what thirteen hundred or so somewhere in that time, and or when you know when when did people stop thinking that the world was flat? Yeah, and how. How much was there? Was it were their minds blown when they finally realized it wasn't? You yeah, know? that's a great think, analogy. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. think that's what we're looking like. Yeah. If if it ever comes to light that that's it's true, I think it. I mean that it would pale in that would pale in comparison because then it brings to it brings it questions a whole bunch of things religion. It, Technology, existence, life, science, 
physics. I mean, it, it right. completely changes the game. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people that would not be able to handle that. Yeah, there may very well be a point in the not-so-distant future, you know, in, in the year 2417, for example, where people say, you remember when humans back in the 21st century used to think that they lived in the space reality? And, yeah. You know, yeah. there's always that, like, um, huge paradigm shift that occurs centuries later. Yeah. Um, when people think it's absurd that the previous civilizations lived, you know, thinking that the um, Earth was the center of the universe. and um, Right sun revolved around the earth you know and, right and um yeah so it seems simple enough you know looking back at it hundreds of years later but um at the yeah. time is what yeah. was accepted you know as the, uh, as the I mean, you can get so you can get so many layers deep in this i mean yeah you can even talk you can talk about even the influence the church had on trying to keep truth from getting out back you know centuries ago you know, yeah, and yeah, I mean, you, dude, this is yeah, you, that's a separate podcast, probably. Right? That's a whole other, yeah, that's a that's a whole other podcast show, and you know, but yeah. when you when the book is done, and, and definitely please let me know. I, I'm definitely gonna I'll be a buyer because. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, that is right up my alley. Yeah, the working title is uh, "Outside the Simulation." Um, so it seems to fit a lot of what I've been writing about. So at least sixty thousand words so far. <laughs> so, yeah. How long? How long have you been writing this? Um, you know, it's definitely gone on for um, a year to a year and a half now. Okay, and well, that's um, reasonable. Yeah, but especially when you have to do research and all this other stuff that goes with it. Yeah, and take the courses and the online right. program. So it's um, yeah, I just dedicate a certain amount of hours per week and try to stay focused. But you know, you. People talk about painting themselves in a corner, but quite often you write yourself in a corner. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you, yeah, you just, you just don't know how to escape uh, that particular chapter or that paragraph and where where it leads to next. You know, so yeah. Well, that's when I, th I think that's <laughs> I think that's where sequels came in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think people are like you know I'm tired of getting painted in a corner. You know what? I'm just gonna I got all of this stuff. I'm gonna write it all down and then we're gonna make a sequel. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else will uh, segment and format it in its appropriate yeah. manner. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's dude. Right. This was this was fun. I enjoyed yeah. having this conversation. I'm, Likewise. I'm, I was very like I was saying, hearing that was very surprising, but pleasantly surprising. And um, where can um, people uh, catch up with you online, or you know, where do you want people to follow you? Yeah, well, I think it could just based research uh, or resource i should say is just the filmstartup.net website that just sort of articulates a lot of what we spoke about during this podcast in terms of the development process and the education process involved um cool. yeah and then i don't use too many social media platforms but i um do quite often use linkedin so if anybody's interested in looking at sort of my history and years of experience um of different sort of career professions um you can just check me out on linkedin and um yeah connect there and then maybe continue a conversation if you want to explore more about uh the film industry or metaphysics you know yeah yeah and, oh uh, and, and yeah uh, it may be a little too soon but me and kevin are talking about putting together a networking event so here in new york city so 
you can, you can um, if you're interested in connecting with Kevin, you should come to that. Um, and if you want to come to that, then you should definitely follow me on Instagram at Darren Jenkins 919, and I will be happy to share information as it is available. So, by the way, I spoke to, uh, I, I heard from Fred. Fred is down. He's just got to figure out what days work for him because okay. he's, gonna, I guess, tax season or something. So, but he, yeah, yeah, he was like, keep him in the loop for sure. So, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be great to do it in person. Um, you yeah. know, but if we, if we have to do it virtual, we can always stick to virtual, but that'd be great to yeah, see folks nice. face to face again. I know it's been a while for, for many of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, yeah. I would like to, I would like to be able to say hi to people in person if possible. But, yeah. Um, or maybe, you know, who knows, maybe we'll do both. I don't know. You know, or maybe there's another clubhouse in store at some point in time. Although clubhouse has not been the same. It's not, hasn't been the, getting the same audiences recently so i'm not oh, really has it changed yeah yeah i haven't been on there that often to be honest and when i'm on there i'm not I'm never that impressed so has it turned into a dating app or? no it's still the same and as far as the content but just i think it's not the fervor that it was before hmm. so but that might be a per- perfect time for us to do it too right i mean you know um not yeah. not a lot of distractions on there we can kind of take over so but we'll you know we'll, we'll talk about that i guess yeah i think just thinking about what the nature of the room can look like you yep. know um and finding the right people to yeah that, that mentorship the moderators in the room would be yeah would be yep. the way to go for that yep yep yeah yeah well yeah, um, great. i really appreciate you having me on and uh yeah man you can come you back know. anytime you want yeah 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 if it, if it, if people need to listen to this. This is this was like a development education podcast. So, yeah, yeah, Very yeah. I like how it's uh, natural and organic at the same time, and uh, you keep that layer of spontaneity. In the I try. You awesome. know, yeah. I get a lot of practice talking to people all the time. So, you know, yeah, Kevin, yeah. this was this was great, dude. Yeah, um, thanks, Darren. For anyone who wants to um, check out Kevin and check him out at filmstartup.net or on LinkedIn, you can find him by just searching Kevin Christofferson. Yeah, um, you got it. That's right. You can check me out on Darren Jenkins 919 on Instagram, or you can go to my website at darrenjenkins.com. I, I never post it, but I should sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Was, you know, yeah. What's up there? Except for more podcasts. Anyway, um, that wraps it up for us today, people. So um, thank you for listening. Be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever we you get your podcasts. And we'll talk to you soon, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Darren.